Good evening. Can everybody hear me? Okay. I'm Laura Barbieri. I'm chair of the Education and the Law Committee, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this panel discussion um, tonight of pilot plans and promises. Is desegregation K through eight possible in New York City school systems? Uh, this panel discussion was put together by the subcommittee of the Education and the Law Committee for Diversity. And I am delighted to uh, be here tonight to welcome all of the panelists that we have before you. Before I do that, though, I just want to thank the people who have put this together. They have done a tremendous job. And um, that subcommittee is uh, here tonight. And they are Emmanuel Arnod, Robin Singer, Deborah Ann Freeman, Gina Anderson, Christina Seta, Jarian James, Leslie Paglietta, uh, Christine Green, and Andy Lane. Um, I also really want to thank Gina Anderson. She has done a tremendous job in getting this panel discussion done and here for you tonight. Um, you might have noticed there are note cards. That is for questions for the panelists. We have allowed 25 minutes at the end of this panel discussion for questions from the audience. So if you raise your hand, you will get a note card and you write your questions, which will be collected by members of the committee. And they will be uh, given to uh, Clara Hempel, who is our moderator tonight, and she will ask those questions to the panelists. Um, if there is any other questions with respect to uh, the panelists uh, throughout the evening, just put them on the note cards, and again, they can be collected. You can ask for additional note cards as you go through the panel discussion. And now I'd like to introduce the chair of the Subcommittee on Diversity, Stephanie Coyle. Stephanie is the uh, council, Education Council for New York Civil Liberties Union. And here Stephanie is. Hi, good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here. My name is Stephanie Coyle, and I'm the chair of the Diversity Subcommittee on the Committee on Education and the Law. Thank you for coming. It is my pleasure to introduce to you our moderator for this evening, Clara Hempel. Clara is the Director of Education Policy at the New Schools Center for New York City Affairs and the founder of Inside Schools website. She leads the center's policy work on economic segregation of the city schools, examining why there are schools with high concentrations of poverty even in mixed income neighborhoods. The New York Times calls her three books the most definitive guides to the city's schools. New York Magazine called her one of the 200 most influential New Yorkers for her work empowering parents. As a reporter and editorial writer for New York Newsday, she shared the Pulitzer Prize for local reporting. She lives in Manhattan with her husband and two children who attended public schools. Thank you, Clara, and welcome. Thank you. <clears throat> Um, this is going to be a great panel because we've got both national experts and local experts and people who all believe passionately that school integration is important, but also disagree on how best to achieve it. 
Um, we have our two national experts. We have Dennis Parker, who's the director of the ACLU's Racial Justice Program, which works on issue, issues such as the school-to-prison pipeline, racial profiling, affirmative action, indigent representation, and voting rights for felons. Before he was with the ACLU, he was chief of the Civil Rights Bureau of the New York State Attorney. He worked for 14 years at the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, litigating scores of cases involving elementary and secondary education, affirmative action in higher education, and equal, edu uh, equal educational opportunity. He's a graduate of Middlebury College and Harvard Law School. We also have Richard Kallenberg, who's a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. He's been called the intellectual father of the economic integration movement in K-12 schooling and one of the most, the nation's chief proponents of class-based affirmative action in higher education. He's the author of 16 books and he's, his articles have been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and the New Republic. He's a graduate of Harvard College and also Harvard Law School. We have uh, two of our um, local experts have arrived. We have Matt Gonzalez, who's director of School Diversity Project for New York Appleseed, which is a nonprofit organization that advocates for integrated schools and communities in New York City and state. He coordinates a coalition called the New York City Alliance for School Integration and Desegregation. He sits on Mayor de Blasio's school, diversary, uh, sorry, school diversity advisory group. And he, has, uh, he, he was a teacher in um, Los Angeles and has a master's degree from Teachers College. Emmy Liss is the chief of staff for the Division of Early Childhood Education at the city's Department of Education. She's the DOE's primary staff liaison to the School Diversity Advisory Group. Um, she graduated from Brown University, where she was an editor of the Brown Daily Herald. Um, and we also have another local expert is Brad Lander, who is a public school parent from uh, Park Slope, also one of the most vocal uh, advocates of integration on the city council. He spearheaded a plan designed to make sure every middle school in his district, District 15, has a mix of middle-income and low-income children. Um, and he's a graduate of the University of Chicago and has master's degrees in social anthropology and city planning. So uh, we're going to, each of these panelists will speak for 10 minutes, and we'll start with uh, Dennis Parker. Thank you, and it's a real pleasure being here with you to talk about this really important issue. I was asked to put the, the, the struggle to, to diversify schools in, in New York City in a, in a national perspective, and I always, when I, like, when I speak, like to, to get some hook to get into the subject. And so I was pleased when I got here and we met for, um, for a pre-meeting um, um, refreshments downstairs in, in a room in the, in the John W. Davis room. Um, and John W. Davis was the president of the American Bar Association, was active in the New York City Bar, um, was one of the leading Supreme Court advocates of the 20th century, probably argued more cases in the Supreme Court than anyone else. Interestingly, 
John W. Davis's last case was as a lawyer in Brown versus Board of Education. And he was representing the school districts that were seeking to continue to have segregated schools, to continue the Plessy versus Ferguson policy of separate but equal. And so it is ironic that this discussion would begin um, in a room that was built to honor someone who wanted to do the exact opposite of what we're talking about here. And it's important because it says something, that here is someone who is rightfully honored for his legal career, but was taking a position um, that is now an extremely disturbing position. I think we tend to think about, um, when we think about Brown, we think about this as a southern phenomenon, something that is far from New York City, and here is, is, um, is John Davis, the, the founder of Davis Polk, a prominent New York firm who was fighting for segregation in the 1950s. I often start a class that I teach on school desegregation by asking my students um, where they think segregation is worst in the country. And they usually list Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and Louisiana. Um, and then are shocked when I tell them that it is in fact New York that is the worst. Um, and that if you look at the list of segregation in American schools, that all of the schools that they named are actually pretty far down on the list of segregation which raises a lot of questions. We think of school segregation and we think of the, the pictures of buses burning um, in Alabama or in South Carolina and, and we think of people standing in schoolhouse doors in Arkansas. We always think of these southern school districts, but now the problem is greatest in the north. And what I wanna do is to set some sort of background for why that would be the case. And there are a few things I'd submit to you are the reason why that is the case. Um, and one of it is the inability of the law to address the issues in terms of court cases, in terms of litigation, the causes of segregation, um, and the limitations of the law in dealing with that. Some of it is an inability of us as a people, as a country, to face up to the causes of the discrimination. Um, and I think that until we do that, we will be in a position where we have the stark segregation that we have in so many of the northern school districts. Gary Orfield is a professor who, is, who has dedicated his career to, to monitoring um, the progress of, of, of uh, desegregation in American schools. And what he has found is that the high point in, in desegregation was, was 1988 that um, from the period of around 1964 through 1988 was the greatest growth in the reduction of segregation in schools. And then since then, it has become increasingly segregated throughout the country. Um, again, part of that is the reason, um, the reason why things got better between 64 and 1988 was not so much that we became um, more enlightened as a people, but because the major cases that were brought were brought in the South and were brought against school districts that had dual systems, that had laws that said you had to, seg to separate on the basis of race. And the jurisprudence requires that in order to show, as you know, a 14th Amendment violation, you must show intentional discrimination. So that the great mass of the cases that were brought to, to address segregation in the schools were brought in those 
states were the, which were the low-hanging fruit, the ones where there were laws that were explicit, where there was no question what was going on. And it is in those school districts that the greatest progress was made between 64 and 1988. Um, what happened after that um, is that schools have steadily become more segregated. Um, uh, there are a few, um, few different trends that are occurring. One is that the number of, of uh, students has increased uh, dramatically over the past 25 years, seven million more students in the last 25 years um, than there were. Um, the demographics have changed uh, dramatically in that time. The share of white students in the, in the United States has gone down from 67% um, to about 50%. The share of Latino students has increased uh, dramatically. Black students have stayed about the same at 15% of the, of the total school population. Um, Asian students have increased, but far less than Latino students. And what has happened is in that time, the experience of students has changed. White students are more likely to have some contact with students of color, um, but because of the fact largely they are decreasing in numbers. But the isolation of black and Latino students has steadily grown over the past three decades. And more disturbing and, more, and central to the issues we'll be talking about today is not only are we more racially and ethnically isolated, um, but we are also more economically isolated. Um, and that the, the impact of economic isolation um, can be as stark as the impact of racial and ethnic um, isolation. And in fact, they are very, very much are, are related. Um, again, the difference in the North and the South is that in the North, we did not have the laws, the state laws that required segregation, but we did have segregation that was based on residential segregation. And unfortunately, the courts are not set up to deal with that. Um, there is a sense that that segregation is not something that is, is that can be remedied through a court case. Um, I think we tend to want to believe that the re that somehow discrimination and bias is less toxic in the North, and in order to maintain that falsehood, we convince ourselves that people live where they choose to live, that the housing patterns are not the result of bias, which of course we know that structurally they are, that everyone from the government to individual actors have behaved in a way which have resulted to the hyper-segregation that is seen in the northern part of that country, and that that in turn has an impact on, on school segregation. And so those are the issues that we have to deal with. Um, when we're talking about desegregating here in, um, in New York City. Um, I have been involved next year. Um, we will be celebrating, if celebration is the right term, the 30th anniversary of a case called Chef versus um, um, O'Neill in uh, Connecticut, which is a state court case that was brought to challenge segregated schools in Hartford, uh, uh, Connecticut. If you're familiar with uh, Connecticut, you, you know that uh, Connecticut, while being one of the richest states in the United States, 
has three of the poorest cities in the United States, Bridgeport, New Haven, and Hartford. And there are very striking demographic patterns. The, the three poor cities are surrounded by some of the wealthiest areas in the United States. And the racial segregation and the, the poverty concentration and the ethnic isolation are very stark between those cities and the surrounding suburbs. A decision was made by a group of national organizations. At that time, I was with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, but the, the ACLU was involved, as well as local advocates who, who noticed the, spark, the stark disparities in educational opportunities between the city and the suburbs. And unfortunately, we were unable to go into court, into federal court, to address it because steadily since 1954, the federal court has been backing off of its enforcement of desegregation. It's striking that the Brown versus Board case and virtually all of the cases that came after that from 1954 to 1971 were decided nine to zero. And the Supreme Court was making a statement that they believed as a whole that something had to be done about desegregation. That fell apart, and the, the, the court started to become less and less uh, committed to the idea of, of uh, desegregating schools. First, by, by um, saying that, that school desegregation plans could not take into account white flight unless you could show that districts um, engaged in discriminatory conduct, you could not include them in the remedy also by showing or by stating that um, there was no constitutional right to an education and that poverty is, is not a class that is uh, protected in the way race is, it made it impossible to have multi or difficult to have multi-district school desegregation cases. And with people leaving the cities to move to the suburbs, that made it difficult to desegregate. And that was exactly the problem that we had in Chef that um, we had a city where the student population was 96 or 97 percent um, African-American and Latino, actually more uh, Latino than African-American, and white suburbs that were, were largely white. But we decided to go in to court under state law, which was the only option that was available to us. And um, I was going to say surprisingly, but, but we uh, prevailed in the Connecticut Supreme Court in 1996. Um, the 22 years between that and now have been um, characterized by a constant struggle, a struggle to give meaning to the words of the Connecticut Supreme Court that recognized that segregation had a lasting impact on on children. The, the Connecticut Supreme Court used language very much like that of the, the United States Supreme Court, which, which talked about the stigma that hurt children in a way that was unlikely ever to be undone. Um, sadly, the remedy has been a slow remedy, and it's a remedy that's currently being challenged in federal court by the uh, Pacific Legal Foundation, which believes that race should not be considered when uh, making uh, K through 12 school assignment. So that's the negative part, that it's been a long struggle and it's been a frustrating struggle. The positive part is that there has been some success. The CHEF program depends on a voluntary program for children and parents where 
they choose to attend magnet schools or they choose to have inter-district transfers in order to uh, desegregate the schools. We were told at the beginning that this would never work, that the, the students and parents in the wealthy white suburbs would never choose to go to a magnet school in Hartford. There are now in excess of 40 magnet schools operating um, that serve schools throughout the district that create opportunities for children in Hartford and in the suburbs. Um, there are now thousands of children who are going to school in the suburbs from Hartford. It is far from where we need to be. We reach only 50% or less than 50% of the Hartford students of color, but it shows that it can be done. And I think that the effort that you'll be talking about tonight um, is hopefully the start of an effort in New York City. Um, it is interesting for me, and, and it was mentioned that I, um, that I headed at one point the NAACP Legal Defense Fund school desegregation docket, <coughs> which had two to 300 school desegregation cases. So many of the things that are being talked about in New York City are things that if they were done in an, in an Alabama school under court order, um, would not have been permitted. They would not have satisfied the law, but they, are, they have become practice in New York. They have become things that we expect. Um, and so one of the biggest battles we have is the recognition that there are policies and practices in New York that have a segregatory impact. And we have to face the fact that some of that comes, some of that arises out of bias, whether it's implicit or explicit, but out of bias that preserves the, the uh, segregation that we have. So I'm hopeful that this discussion and, and so many of others that seek to deal with this will start to break that down. There is no question that schools that are integrated, that are economically diverse, provide more educational opportunities particularly for low income and students of color, but also provide benefits for all students. And until we achieve that, then we are leaving students behind, we are leaving opportunity behind, we are leaving behind the opportunity to make this a great city and a great nation. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, it's really nice to be here. First, I have to collect, uh, correct one thing from uh, Claire's lovely introduction, uh, because uh, I sure did not spearhead the District 15 middle school integration plan. I was really proud to be a part of a real extraordinary team of folks who organized for it together and honored to be one of them. So uh, I almost never feel the need to correct you, but on that, I wanted to. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry to be uh, a little late and actually have to run out uh, in the middle. Um, you know, on the way here, I felt it was pretty important to get in Times Square uh, and join the Trump is not, no one is above the law protest uh, before I came into the Bar Association. Um, but I, what I will say is I actually think there's a, a reasonably direct connection between what I was doing out there trying to protect our democracy and how I think about the importance of our school integration work, 
um, which I think has all the benefits Dennis talked about. It is critical to providing a meaningfully equal education to low-income kids and kids of color. It is better for white, middle-class, upper-middle-class students to come to live in a more diverse world as a result of attending diverse schools. But I, I will say to you, I don't think we can sustain our democracy if we keep schools especially and cities as well and our country as well as segregated as we currently have it. And my evidence for this is a new book, um, relatively new book came out a few months ago called How Democracies Die by um, the political scientists Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. And what they note is that um, there's not yet meaningful examples, maybe not even one, but certainly not meaningful examples of countries that have transitioned from being majority white, you know, majority kind of native population, but generally that's majority white, and that became diverse, in which that group no longer constituted a majority, uh, that, you know, everyone essentially was not a majority at that point, fully diverse, and in which they were able to establish a stable, inclusive, multiracial democracy in which folks share power in a more equal way. And you know that's the crisis that we are facing in our country. And I think the only way to the other side, to a genuinely inclusive multiracial democracy, um, is through desegregation. I just don't see any other way. That's a bigger challenge writ large. But boy, the contribution that we could make in New York City was showing that we could do it in our public schools. We know it works. We assign all the kids to all the schools. So we have it within our policy capacity to achieve integration if we decide politically it's worth doing and we can build the political will uh, for it and make it happen. So I wanna raise a couple of questions because um, I think they are hard ones, especially being here at the Bar Association about how we make progress because there's some really hard contradictions, right? We have a model that we do it as a result of uh, the law and court orders, right? Brown versus Board, really good lawyers, bring cases, get court orders. And the idea there, and it's a good one, is that the justice system holds us to our values when the popular will does not, when people don't want to live those values. And that is a lovely idea. And if you could get me that country, um, I would take it. But I would stipulate that at least for the next while, and unfortunately not just the next two years because the Supreme Court will be what it is for a while now. Um, not that there shouldn't continue to be good litigation, but I don't see litigation in that court-ordered model as a way of making meaningful progress toward integration in the near term. So we're gonna have to do it through building a real movement, through building the popular will, through building sufficient broad public support to do it. And there's a, you know, a, a contradiction in that, like, we mostly say we believe in this. Like, if you ask people, do you believe in integration, of course, mostly they'll say yes. I've been intriguing to see that the New York Post and the Manhattan Institute, now that we're actually making progress, are willing to come out basically publicly and say, we don't, we're against integration. We, there's something wrong with it. We don't believe. And it's kind of useful to have that actually out there to remember what we're fighting. But it's also a challenge to fight a thing where, like, we all say we believe it. We have lived with for decades with a system that, that violates that value, that doesn't deliver it, and we don't really do anything about it. And we have not yet built 
a movement, a serious movement. I think we think because like there's newspaper articles criticizing the mayor for not moving fast enough that we've built a movement to do it. But before three weeks ago when there were maybe three or 400 people at Boys and Girls High School, I think the largest rally in favor of school integration in New York City was when 75 high school kids from Integrate NYC stood on the steps of City Hall a year or a year and a half ago. So like it's on us to build a bigger movement than that if we wanna make a change this big, it is not an easy one, and we got a, a long way to go to do it. Um, and an additional challenge in that, well, and I should actually want to just speak plainly about myself as well. Like, I really don't, I, I don't approach this from a point of self-righteousness. I have sent both my children to largely segregated schools in Brooklyn, um, and they're mostly through the system now. So like, uh, you know, the, those criti critics that say, well, you, you know, benefited from segregation and the white privilege it delivers, and now that your kids are mostly through the system, uh, you've discovered that it would be important to have integration, like guilty as charged, um, but also, boy, if the answer to that is like, oh, well, let's just let it keep going, um, that doesn't seem like the right one. So like, we're gonna have to do some serious introspection, we're gonna have to be honest, and then we're gonna have to build something that works and a challenge I think we face, and I'm gonna to try to talk a little bit about how to address it, is about the balance between incremental progress, like making the next school and the next school and the next school somewhat more integrated, and the stark nature of the moral injustice that we are living with. And I'll just stipulate to you that I think we're just gonna to have to live with that. Like, it is a moral injustice bigger than like carrying a sign in a rally that would say 10% less segregated, um, but I don't think there's much choice other than building a movement and at the same time making incremental progress. Um, and I think I'll try to make a little argument that I really actually think those two things can actually work together to build momentum rather than deflect it. And I think so far, the story of what we have moved together in New York over the last five years is starting to be a good case in that direction. Five years ago, our schools were very segregated. They were about the same as they are today, not surprisingly, and almost no one was talking about it. Before the Orfield, the Gary Orfield's report from UCLA came out, uh, before Nicole Hannah-Jones's um, problem we all live with story, before a hearing we had at city council as those things were, were uh, popping, there was just almost no public dialogue about segregation in New York City schools at all. And you know, for the previous basically several decades, we had just pretended that we didn't have school segregation as a public policy problem worthy of our attention. Um, but over the last five years, that has changed somewhat as a result of the UCLA report, as the result of a lot of good journalism, as the result of some work the council's done to pass some laws requiring more data and oversight, as the result of really good organizing by the Alliance for School Integration and Desegregation, which you'll hear about uh, from Matt, including the work of parents, uh, educators out in our districts, um, and uh, students through Integrate NYC, which is to me the most hopeful thing going on in the country, much less the city. Um, and then as the result of some work by the Department of Education, which you'll hear about uh, from, from Emmy, starting to move in a good direction. Um, and it really did start slowly. Like it started at one school, and I won't tell the whole story of PS 133 in Brooklyn. This was actually back in the Bloomberg administration, but basically they were building a new school and just because the system kind of produced it, what they proposed essentially was one building with like a black school and a white school in it, and like two different doors and two different schools and two different principals. And finally, the folks in that district were like, okay, that is too far. And there was a push, and folks at, for the, the DOE's lawyers at first said, we can't use 
um, kind of tools to achieve more uh, integrated admissions, but as a result of, I won't tell that whole story, some good local organizing and a little bit of power in the CECs, um, the Bloomberg DOE agreed for the first time to allow a diversity and admissions approach for one school. And so then, as the pressure was building, the first step the de Blasio administration took after um, you know, some amount of saying, this is just not the problem we're choosing to focus on, when enough pressure got built up, they said, well, we'll try that with a few more schools. So first seven, and then a few more, and a few more, and now I think we're in the 30s. Um, kind of individual schools can use a diversity and admissions approach to, uh, so that those individual schools wind up with uh, more integrated uh, classrooms. Uh, at the same time, people started pushing for more district-wide approaches. Folks on the ground in District 1, in District 3, in District 13, and District 15 said, we want to achieve strategies in our district. The folks in the front there were District 1, who already had unzoned elementary schools, so it wasn't residential segregation that was resulting in segregation. It was a system that assigned kids across all those schools, but in a way which didn't yet factor. Is this what you were going to tell, Matt? Should I not tell this part of the story? Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. So um, I'll do this part shorter then, and so they can... No, no, but this is good. I, let me skip. I'll do D15, because that's the one I was in the middle of, but I think what I want to argue is we, keep, we have been making, each thing makes the next thing a little bit bigger, more possible. And when the Department of Education released their school diversity plan back in June of 2017, I think even then folks said, this is not yet a real serious thoroughgoing effort, but it opened the door. It created a school diversity advisory group you're going to hear more about. And it said, if districts want some help planning for diversity and admissions across the district, we'll provide it. So we in D15 said yes. Our middle schools, we, District 15 is a very diverse district, Park Slope, Red Hook, Sunset Park, Kensington, Carroll Gardens, Cobble Hill, really diverse but really segregated. So our elementary schools are segregated by geographic zones, but for our middle schools, you could families choose from amongst all 11 schools in the system. And the sorting process we've had historically of choice with school screening has produced largely segregated schools in a pretty diverse district because the screens even though they present themselves as a system of choice and meritocracy, function as a system of privilege hoarding. Uh, and that is what has just happened. And you can see it, it has gotten worse. DOE, as part of the process, gave us really good data, which was very helpful, paid for really good planners to work with us over a six-month process. And at the end of it, the vast majority of people were willing to go much farther than they were at the beginning. At the beginning, we were talking about like a 30 or 35% set aside for low-income students. By the end, we were saying 52% of the kids in the district are low-income, so 52% of the kids in each school should be the target. And let's do away with the screens, which are functioning for that segregation. So that's the plan. Um, it has been received, amazingly, with pretty broad support. There is some resistance and opposition for sure, but there is pretty broad support across the district, despite different questions about it from white parents, from Latino parents, from black parents, all of whom have reasons to say, I got questions about whether this is really just a front for gentrification or will my student of color actually be welcome in a school that I perceive to have historically had a lot of bias or will that school for all of us deliver good education for my kids? And yet there's broad support. It is being implemented right now. People are making their choices or getting ready to give the DOE their choices for admissions to District 15 schools next fall. 
Um, and I feel really optimistic about what it is going to deliver and how well it's going to work. You're going to hear more from Matt, I think, about the five R's of real integration and why just shifting the kids around is not enough. That's been a big part of it, thanks to organizing from students and parents and educators. Um, and I think now we're ready to ask harder questions, to start looking after that starts to work at our elementary schools, to push for bigger change in New York City's high schools, which are, you know, we assign all the kids across the city to schools and we could achieve, we focus, the, the public conversation has been about the specialized high schools, the ones for the most part that Albany tells us how to uh, admit, but the 400 others, we make those choices. So we've got a, a whole set of next steps that I'm not gonna go into now because I've used up too much of my, my time, but. I put out, my office put out a report called Desegregating New York City, 12 Steps Toward a More Inclusive City that looks at both on the school side and on the residential side, a set of pretty concrete things we can do, like which neighborhoods are we choosing to rezone? Let's make sure it's not only low-income communities of color, it's also upper middle class white neighborhoods, and it's why I've been pushing for a rezoning in Gowanus. Um, and um, there's a bunch of other things that we could be doing. They are not in five years gonna deliver us, you know, the level of integration that our law and our values say we should have, but we could see progress while at the same time continuing to tend and build the movement that demands significantly further progress than that. Um, and I guess what I would just uh, end with is this, you know, every year I try to go to the graduation at the Brooklyn New School, which is the one school in my district that's been working to have integrated admissions for 25 years at this point. Um, and it's a little like going to those meetings of Integrate NYC, that high school wing of the school integration movement, because when you get yourself in that room and you see what happens, like when young people have actually had a chance to work together across lines of difference and race and class, and how well they, what they build as a result, um, you get a little taste of what it might look like to build that genuinely inclusive multiracial democracy and you become convinced both that it can work and that it's really worth building a movement to fight for. So I'm honored to be in the middle of it with you guys. Um, there is a long way to go, but at least we're not in denial. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you so much to the New York City Bar Association for hosting this panel uh, and for inviting me to participate and to all of my co-panelists for what I'm sure will be a great conversation. Um, as Clara said, my name is Emmy Liss. I'm Chief of Staff to the Division of Early Childhood Education and Student Enrollment at the DOE. Um, over the last several years, the DOE has taken a number of steps to begin uh, creating policies and enabling the creation of more diverse learning environments. Much of that has happened through the Office of Student Enrollment, uh, and so that's a lot of what I'll talk about tonight, uh, though it's more than, um, as, as I think you'll hear from across the panel, just a question about how we change who's in our schools, but how we think about creating really integrated learning environments for all of our students. Uh, the New York City Department of Education believes that diverse learning environments benefit all of our children. And when we talk about diversity, we often have conversations more specifically about race and socioeconomic status, but we like to think of diversity in broader terms. It's also about the cultural identity, the home language and country of origin, the immigration status and housing status, the life experience, the gender, the sexual identity and orientation, 
um, and the special needs and ability of all of the students and adults who make up our school communities. While New York City itself is extraordinarily diverse, and we see that in our day-to-day in our -day lives across the city, that's not reflected across our individual schools, and that's something that you know, the DOE has recognized and as uh, was referenced in 2017, we released a plan that put out our first set of moves um, as it relates to school diversity. So in that plan, we defined diversity as a priority of the department. We laid out a set of initial policy moves and a preliminary set of goals that we wanted to hold ourselves to in thinking about how to make our schools more diverse. And we set out a roadmap for how we would engage community members in actually meaningfully making plans to make our schools more diverse. And so one of the first things that we did was to introduce the School Diversity Advisory Group, which is a body of about 40 people, including students, parents, educators, advocates, researchers, policymakers, who have come together to develop recommendations uh, to give to the mayor and chancellor for how to make our school system more diverse. Uh, the School Diversity Advisory Group is very well represented up on this panel, uh, and we have been working together over the past year to really begin hearing more from community members. We held town halls in every borough this year, and as well as a symposium just for students, and heard for, um, from almost 1,000 New Yorkers specifically about what school diversity means to them and what they want to see happen and change in their communities. And for many of the families we spoke to, they acknowledged it was the first time that anyone had asked them those questions, and we think it's important to continue getting out there and asking those questions rather than setting policy sort of ourselves um, back, in, back at the DOE. Uh, and so over the last several years, the DOE has taken policy steps, as have been mentioned and will be mentioned further by other panelists, I'm sure, um, to start addressing segregation in our school system. And we've been doing that through both bottom-up and top-down approaches. Uh, the diversity in admissions pilot program um, that Councilmember Lander mentioned, which started with seven schools three years ago, is an opportunity for individual schools to come forward and develop plans for how they want to change their admissions priority structure to intentionally create more diverse environments. In three years, we've gone from seven to over 80 schools that participate in the program, including everything from our pre-K programs up through high schools. And some of the ways in which we see this manifesting is schools that are in diverse neighborhoods but have a segregated student body are setting priority structures that will bring a more socioeconomically diverse group of students into their school. We see schools that are in gentrifying neighborhoods setting priority structures that will help preserve their schools as diverse learning environments and keep them from changing. And we see schools that are using this as a, as a mechanism to start doing outreach to communities who never have considered their schools before and to say that all are welcome here and we want to create structures that enable that. Centrally, the DOE has created uh, new policies that eliminate barriers that for too long um, privilege those with greater resources to fare better in our admissions system. So things like an admissions method that gave priority to students who had participated in an open house or attended a school tour. Um, we've taken that admissions method away and are examining the other admissions methods that our schools use and how they may privilege or advantage certain populations. We're also taking steps to create greater access. For the first time this year, middle and high school students can actually apply online to their schools and use a much more accessible online tool that translates into all spoken languages in New York City, is accessible on a cell phone, and use that with their parents to think about what schools might be right for them. 
We're creating virtual tours for the first time this year so that families don't need to get themselves to a school at three o'clock on a weekday, which we know, again, privileges certain types of families who are able to, to take the time to do that. Um, the DOE is also thinking not just about admissions, but as I said, about how we create meaningfully integrated school environments and make sure that all schools are welcoming to students, no matter their race, socioeconomic status, um, or other characteristic. And so we are, over the next two years, investing $23 million in anti-bias training to make sure that every staff member across the DOE has been trained in anti-bias, anti-racist, practices and that we are truly creating school environments that are welcoming to all students. A lot of the change we've seen in the last few years has really been at the grassroots level uh, and the DOE has been proud to support several of the city's 32 community school districts in engaging in meaningful community-led change. And so District 1 um, was, was the first big pilot for us um, in 2017, uh, we approved the first diverse, district-wide diversity plan in District 1, which covers the Lower East Side and East Village. But the work in District 1 started many years ago thanks to the work of parent leaders and advocates who recognized that despite the fact that the district is unzoned, meaning that families across the East Village and Lower East Side can attend any of the district's 16 elementary schools in what is an incredibly diverse district that actually does well represent the demographics of the city, the schools themselves were meaningfully segregated um, socioeconomically and racially to the point that we had schools in the same building whose demographics could not have varied more widely. And so through the advocacy of local leaders, including parent leaders and school leaders and elected officials, the district applied for a state grant and beginning in 2015, started to plan for how they could look at admissions in a way that would actually lead to all of the schools better reflecting the broader community. And so last fall, um, we worked closely with district leadership and with parents and advocates to pass, a, to pass a plan in which we changed the admissions priority structure at every elementary school in the district so that each school would prioritize 67% of its seats for students who are low income in temporary housing um, or who speak a language other than English at home. That's the composition of the district. 67% of kindergarten applicants um, are fit at least one of those characteristics. And so each school in their admissions process prioritized seats in order to look more like the district. This is our first year of seeing the plan in action and we're encouraged by what we've seen so far. Nearly all of the elementary schools for both pre-K and kindergarten moved closer to the district average in terms of how their demographics look. Uh, and it's not just about changing admissions, but we also established a physical center, the Family Resource Center, as we call it, which is a physical hub in the community where families can go to gain support as they're thinking about applying to school, to learn about schools that they might not have otherwise considered, and to have meaningful conversations about uh, the opportunities within the district. And so we continue to work closely with the parent leaders there to make tweaks to the plan uh, and again, are encouraged by what we're seeing. We know it will take time. The schools are not going to change overnight, but there's a real energy um, from the community to try to move forward. District 3 on the Upper West Side, covering about 59th Street to 125th Street, um, engaged in a similar process this past year looking at middle school. And there, the, the question really was, why are our middle schools um, in, across a district similar to um, District 15, where there are different, um, all different sorts of racial and socioeconomic communities. The middle schools themselves were quite segregated. 
And again, it has a lot to, had a lot to do with the way that schools were screening their students for admissions. And so here again, with the support of parent leaders and school leaders, we've implemented a new approach to admissions that families are applying for this fall for students who will enter sixth grade next year, in which we've reserved a portion of seats at each middle school for our lowest performing students so that we can meaningfully move towards academic diversity, which we believe will also create all sorts of other forms of diversity. Um, but the system that is segregating students by their academic ability, which often correlates to middle, the elementary schools they went to and the characteristics of those students, um, we want to disrupt that effect in the middle schools and we're excited to see what happens there. And in District 15, um, which I think you've heard already a great summary of what, of what happened in the district, we were thrilled to engage in this sort of year-long process. And the DOE really took a backseat here, and we empowered this group of community stakeholders to bring their communities together and to develop a plan for how to approach middle school diversity. The only things I, I would add to the description you already heard is just the incredible work that went in <coughs> to this process from the community organizers to make sure that all voices were represented. Um, at public meetings that were held uh, for families from across the district, there was translation support in multiple languages, childcare and food to make sure that families didn't face any barriers in participating, and an incredible outreach effort to ensure that the typically underrepresented voices were really at the table and had the ability to speak and share their perspective and influence the ultimate outcome. And I think that through that process, we saw just this really inclusive movement of families from Park Slope and Sunset Park and Red Hook and who otherwise might not come together to have a conversation about how segregation is impacting all of their ch children and schools. We saw the results of that in this really transformative plan that I think we would say went further than we expected to see it go. And similarly, we've heard really positive support from across the district. Um, this fall, as families are applying to middle school, we're engaged in a big outreach effort to make sure that every fifth grade family in the district gets a phone call to help support them through the application process. And we have uh, started to see applications trickled in. They just opened up last week. So again, we're excited to see, see what happens next there. Uh, and really inspired by each of these processes, the city has committed uh, a new set of resources to help communities plan. When we announced the District 15 plan earlier this fall, we also announced a $2 million investment that will allow the DOE to give planning grants to other districts to help them go through a meaningful community engagement process as they think about what diversity looks like and means in their community and how they might want to move forward uh, and make change to their schools. So we'll be opening up an application later this year, um, coming into the winter, to allow districts to apply for those funds to engage in a process at their local level. And so I think for us, you know, we're in the midst of what we feel is a really exciting moment. Uh, I think we too recognize that for too long, New York City schools have been segregated, and it took us a long time to get here. It's gonna take us a long time to um, make change, but we're encouraged by the support we see from communities across the city, by the leadership from our chancellor and the mayor on this topic, and from all of the grassroots movement coming together across the city, um, from parents, from students, from educators, and we're thrilled to be able to partner with all of those communities as we work towards more meaningful change. 
and we're looking forward to continuing to do that and the work of our school diversity advisory group, which we know will continue to push the system forward. Got someone's phone here. Is this yours, Brad? No, no? thanks. Okay. Um, so, uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Richard Kallenberg. I'm a, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. Uh, the Century Foundation is a think tank that was was founded in 1919 uh, by Edward Filene, uh, whose basement some of you may have visited. Now, see that that becomes a harder and harder thing to say, as, as the younger people in the audience have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, it was a department store that was uh, dedicated to, uh, to really making uh, clothing accessible to people. Filene was this amazing uh, Republican progressive uh, business person who cared a lot about inequality in our society. And so that's what we uh, at the Century Foundation are, are focused on. So. Um, being a think tank nerd, I have a, a PowerPoint uh, and will, uh, was a, I was asked to talk about uh, basically what the, uh, the data suggests about the importance of uh, desegregation and integration for academic achievement uh, and also to bring a little bit of a national perspective. I've worked with a number of school districts across the country on efforts to integrate their schools by, by socioeconomic status and race, and so I'll, I'll uh, talk a little bit about that as well. So um, this has been touched on by others, but I think it's important to distinguish between two big reasons why integration matters and why it uh, is a benefit to, to all students. Uh, the first is the notion that providing uh, all students with a diverse environment allows them to, to learn from one another. This is a, a way in which uh, white students benefit, African-American students benefit, Asian students benefit, Latino students benefit, low income and wealthy. Everyone benefits from integration, from that learning uh, from one another. But there's a second and distinct reason uh, that those of us who are kind of on the, the social justice side of this issue uh, are, are most focused on, I would say. And that is to suggest that there's 50 years of research uh, showing that one of the very best things uh, we can do for disadvantaged students in particular is to allow them to go to an economically and racially integrated school as opposed to one that has concentrations of poverty. So students who live in poverty can do amazing things uh, but we need to give them the right environment, and a segregated, poverty-concentrated environment uh, is, is not the, uh, the optimal one, according to lots of research. So um, on this first point about the way in which we all benefit, I, I love this quotation from a researcher, Eugene Garcia, who talks about uh, the little suitcase that every child brings to school. Uh, it's a suitcase full of experiences, their language and their culture um, that, that they, they bring to school based on their previous experiences. And for a lot of American history, teachers would essentially say, let's close that suitcase, let's forget about that, you're going to learn uh, what we teach here. And now educators recognize that if they instead are inclusive and welcoming and say, uh, let's open that little suitcase, 
and see what you have in there so that uh, you can share with other students and we can learn from you. Uh, that to me is a very powerful statement. Uh, I probably would have said it's a backpack, but, uh, but I think you get the idea. A suitcase that every child brings. They, everyone has something to offer. Uh, okay. Uh, on the second point about the, the negative effects of concentrated poverty. Uh, we all know of high poverty schools that work well. And, and God bless the teachers and the principals and the students in those schools. Uh, they are doing amazing work. They tend to get written up uh, in the papers because, um, because they are encouraging and uh, important stories. But it's important to also note that they are very much the exception to the rule. So if you look at schools that are persistently high performing, that is they do, students do well in several grades in both math and reading um, across time, uh, it turns out that schools that are uh, economically mixed, that have um, a, a core of middle class families in them, are 22 times as likely to be high performing as high poverty schools. Uh, 22 times. So if we are trying to maximize the odds that every child will have the opportunity to go to a strong school that will be a high-performing school uh, or has a chance to be a high-performing school, uh, one of the worst things we can do is to, is to concentrate poverty. Uh, now, a number of school districts across the country uh, have belatedly begun to recognize this research. Uh, I started looking at the idea of integrating schools by socioeconomic status uh, back in 1996. And at that time, there were two school districts in the entire nation that were uh, consciously bringing children of different uh, socioeconomic groups together to learn, uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin, and McKinney, Texas. Uh, since then, we've seen uh, a broad increase in the number of school districts. Uh, now we've identified 100 school districts educating about 4 million students. Uh, and we would include a, a couple of the districts now in, in New York City that uh, are looking at socioeconomic status as a, uh, one of the factors that is used in, in student assignment. Um, so if you, if you look uh, nationwide, you can see these districts are, are found across the country in, in red states and in, and in blue states. Uh, just to give you a couple of examples, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts is one of the leading um, innovators in, in the area of, of socioeconomic uh, and racial integration. So in Cambridge, there are no neighborhood schools. Every school is a school of choice. Uh, they, each school has something um, that uh, makes it distinct and interesting. And in essence, each of the school is a non-selective magnet school. So it'll have some uh, teaching approach or, or theme that makes it special. Parents then choose among a variety of those schools. And uh, importantly, the district honors those choices in a way to achieve integration by socioeconomic status and as a corollary by, by race. And so their goal is that uh, the, the district should be within 10 percentage points of the average uh, district-wide free and reduced price lunch uh, percentage. Um, and for, for those of you who don't spend a lot of time in education, free and reduced price lunches is, um, is the, uh, you know, the national program 
that provide subsidized lunch to those families, uh, typically earning uh, below $40,000 a year. Uh, now, uh, New York City obviously doesn't have the demographics of, of Cambridge. It's not 40% low income. The, the numbers are much higher here. Uh, but there are districts across the country, like Chicago, where uh, actually they have even a higher percentage of students who are low income, and nevertheless they are seeking to uh, integrate, beginning with a subset of schools. And so I worked with the Chicago Public Schools to try to uh, integrate the magnet schools and their selective enrollment schools um, to try to get a, a healthier economic mix in the school, uh, which, which also translates into, into a, uh, a, a stronger racial mix. Um, Dennis, I don't think you went into the, the PICS decision in too much detail uh, in, in your comments. You didn't. I, I yeah, and, and so but let me just put that on the table, that part of the reason that some of these districts are using socioeconomic status is that there are um, fewer uh, legal restrictions on, on using income as opposed to, to race. Uh, and then a third example to cite is, is Montgomery County, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C., where they have uh, an inclusionary zoning policy for, uh, for housing. And many of you may be familiar with this concept. Basically, when a developer builds a certain number of units, she needs to set aside a proportion of the units for low-income and working-class families, those with modest income. And so that's been a way, given the fact that most students attend neighborhood public schools, uh, that's a way to help integrate the schools as well as to integrate neighborhoods. So quickly, let me uh, show some of the results in these schools. Uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, you can see the, uh, uh, the graduation rates for African-American students, for Latino students, and for low-income students are substantially higher than they are in uh, the state of Massachusetts as a whole and uh, much higher, uh, almost 20 percentage points higher than in Boston where the schools are much more economically and racially segregated. So uh, Cambridge's integrated program uh, appears to be having a positive impact on, on graduation rates. And you'll see that the, the white students uh, continue, to do, uh, continue to do quite well in, in, uh, in Cambridge. So they're not only benefiting from the diversity, but they uh, are also uh, graduating at, at high levels. Uh, Last slide I want to show goes to the results in, in Montgomery County, uh, Maryland, where I mentioned they have the inclusionary zoning program. And uh, Montgomery County provides for researchers what is kind of a, a wonderful experiment about what counts most in education if you're concerned about the, the academic achievement results. So uh, Montgomery County does two things. Uh, they have the inclusionary zoning program, which allows so, some low-income families to live in middle-class neighborhoods. They also have a uh, progressive spending policy where they will uh, devote about $2,000 extra per pupil in the higher poverty schools in Montgomery County. So the question became, uh, you know, if you are a low-income student, uh, where do you do better? Do you do better in a school that spends extra, $2,000 more, for good things like reduced class size, uh, better professional development for teachers, 
uh, extended learning time, or you, do you do better in an economically integrated school that doesn't have uh, those extra resources? And, uh, and what was nice about the, um, uh, the, the research design in this particular case is that families were randomly assigned to public housing throughout Montgomery County. So because public housing is so scarce, people take whatever they can get. And so it's not that a certain type of low-income family was deciding to live in a middle-class neighborhood. They, they were randomly assigned. And, uh, and it turns out that the students in the green zone, which is the more affluent uh, schools, over time uh, did far better than the low-income students who were in higher poverty schools that had these extra resources, um, the $2,000 extra per pupil. And to me, that's a, a, uh, a powerful example of what can happen when you, when you integrate schools. So the students in the green zone uh, ended up cutting the math gap with their middle class peers in half, the reading gap by one third. Uh, and importantly for this discussion, which is about schools more than housing, most of the positive effect was related to the fact that the students were uh, going to economically integrated schools as opposed to living in economically integrated neighborhoods. About a third of the positive effect was the neighborhood effect. Uh, Two-thirds was, was this, uh, the opportunity to go to an economically integrated school. So if you're interested, um, there are several books on these, this issue, uh, all available on Amazon. Um, and uh, my, my, I want to acknowledge my co-author in one of these books, Hallie Potter, who's uh, in New York City, has done a lot of really interesting work around charter schools as well. So, um, so I will we'll stop there. We, I know we'll get into the issue of why integrated schools end up having this positive effect uh, a little later, but, um, but let me stop and, and turn it over to Matt at this point. I'm actually going to um, interrupt and add because um, Mr. Parker has to leave. I just wanted to ask him a, a, two questions. Okay, Matt, thank you. So um, I wanted to ask your take on Gary Orfield's 2014 UCLA study that said that New York has the most segregated schools in the country. And I don't deny that our schools are segregated, but are we really worse than Chicago or LA or Washington, DC? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm afraid you are. Um, and, and it is, um, you know, it is, it is striking because unlike some other school districts that, that, that are whole counties that may cover a really large distance, you know, the, the, it is possible in New York to create schools that are far less segregated and so many policies and practices have worked together. So um, I believe that he is accurate in that. And then um, New York has abandoned use of race in its integration plan since the 2007 Parents Involved Supreme Court decision. Um, does that decision leave districts any leeway in considering race? Well, the, the decision did. How long that will stand is another question. Um, as, as, um, as Rick mentioned, there are a lot of alternatives, including economic ones, where you can create some level of racial um, desegregation by looking at, at 
at factors that are race neutral, and some of those are set out in the parents involved um, uh, decision, and those include things like where you locate schools, whether you do outreach to bring students into schools, where they will increase the diversity, where you place programs for schools. Um, but Justice Kennedy also suggested that if you tried and exhausted all of the all of the race-neutral approaches, then you might be justified in considering race explicitly. And there was a time when we were thinking of, of perhaps taking him up on that. Now, of course, he is no longer on the court. Um, if anything, the court is moving further to the right. So how long that will survive is uncertain. And as I mentioned, the case that we have in Connecticut, we believe, is an attempt to get the issue of race conscious decision-making in K through 12 schools back in front of a more hostile Supreme Court. So um, I wish I could say that it wasn't incredibly bleak, but. We, we do still have one New York City school that's under a court order for uh, racial integration from 1979. It's the Louis Armstrong Middle School in Queens. Right, and, and of course, you know, having having, considering race as a remedial option, if it's remedial for a, for a uh, violation of the law is a possibility. Can you elaborate a little on that? Yes, you know, the, basically when, for the government to consider race, you have to show that there's a compelling governmental interest and you have to show that the program is designed in a way that is as narrow as possibly so that you don't hurt, um, that you don't injure um, anyone in, in, um, in putting the program into effect. So there's no question that racial diversity is a, um, is a compelling governmental interest. Um, historically, remedying past discrimination, showing that, that there had been a constitutional violation and that race was necessary to, to correct that has been an accepted justification. Um, but now, you know, diversity can be a, a, a justification, but you have to show that it's narrowly tailored. You have to show that, that you are really trying to avoid using race explicitly, particularly with regard to individual students. Um, and so that's where we are now, but there's an effort, I believe, to have that come before the court and to, um, to adopt um, a race-blind approach, which, um, which is unrealistic and doesn't reflect, I believe, um, the current role of race in the United States and the disadvantages that are associated with, with race, and I, I believe that race has to be explicitly considered, um, but I may not be in agreement with, uh, with the Supreme Court. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. I'm sorry I have to leave. Matt, you're up. <laughs> and I'm, I'm particularly sorry to miss Matt's presentation. <laughs> hey, everybody. Uh, how's everyone feeling? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I will do my best to make this brief so that we can get into more of a discussion. I don't like talking at folks. and. I doubt anyone likes that either. Um, so thanks for having me. Um, it's always a wonderful and unique experience to stand in a room um, where the walls are filled with white men and uh, to like just think about what that message means. Um, and I say that to like make a joke, but I also think that that, that actually is relevant to some of the remarks I want to say. And so, um, you know, I'll talk a little bit about what I do at New York Appleseed, but I also wanted to start off like uh, talking about why I do this. 
um, and what kind of brings me to this work um, because that just felt present for me today because I'm not good at writing notes and so I wrote like five bullet points down and I'm gonna try to stick to them. Um, and so uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, I grew up in a community called Inglewood. It's a predominantly black and brown community, um, very low income community. And so I grew up uh, between K through eight going to uh, what we would consider you know, racially, economically segregated schools um, serving low income brown kids like me. Um, and when I went to high school, um, I, my family moved out of the community for uh, gentrification reasons um, that are frustrating and annoying, but um, uh, we moved to a different community, and so in that process, I was, I was given an opportunity to go to a different school. Um, and so I, I ended up going, uh, attending a school called Westchester High. If you've ever flown into Los Angeles, um, the community that surrounds LAX is called Westchester. It's a predominantly uh, white community. It's been historically been a predominantly white community. Um, it, the public schools there are, serve about 90% uh, black and brown students um, because uh, in the 50s when um, there were efforts to desegregate those public schools. All the families in those communities left, you know, actually, you know, engaged in white flight and left the communities for private schools. Um, so I was bused into a predominantly white community um, with a bunch of other friends of mine uh, from Inglewood and from Hawthorne, from other low-income black and brown communities. Um, and so the experience that I had, uh, I got to, I went to what I would consider a desegregated school, a diverse school. It was still 90% black and brown. Um, but but I had a, we had a, a pocket of white and Asian kids from the community whose families either couldn't afford private school or believed something deeply in like diversity and, and local public schools, which is a really unique and interesting story there. Um, and so I have a, to this day, have a really rich and diverse group of friends that um, have make my life wonderful and, and exciting and unique. Um, and if that's where the story ended, that would be like, that would be it, that would be amazing. Um, however, you know, entering into that community every single day, we took the bus uh, for the first couple of years until I was old enough to drive. We all drive in LA. Um, and so once we were able to drive, me and my friends would drive, to, drive together. We'd pick each other up, we'd drive into the community. Um, every single month, once a month at a minimum, we would be pulled over for nothing. DWB, just driving while black or brown. Um, so entering into that community to access our, uh, our, our right to education was a struggle. It, there were barriers created just for us to be welcomed into that neighborhood. Um, entering into the school, um, which again was a predominantly black and brown school, so my kind of cultural identity, my understanding of my own community and like my role and experience as a person of color was completely affirmed um, by my fellow students. Um, the ways in which um, the experiences and the opportunities that I had, like again, I had a group of really awesome white and Asian friends and a really diverse group of friends. Um, however, when we would leave the, like, the hangout areas, we'd go to separate classrooms. Um, and so we didn't actually even understand what was happening because there was a magnet school, uh, which you know, was, a, was a historic tool for desegregation uh, to draw in middle class families. Um, so there was a magnet program inside of that school. Um, I was not a part of it. Most of the black and brown kids were not a part of it. Um, but w there was a point in my, my high school career where I got put into an AP class because someone was like, oh, this kid knows some stuff. Um, and so when I entered into that AP class, I realized that's where all my white homies were sitting. I was like, oh, so we, we have separate classrooms inside of this you know, fairly diverse school. Um, and so entering into the community to access my education was a challenge. Understanding and realizing that the opportunities within that school that I was being given were different from some of my white peers um, some of those folks were given a college counselor. I was, I did, was, I'm a first-gen college graduate. I did not know how to apply for a FAFSA. 
I did not have a college counselor. I didn't even know how to like, the, I didn't even know the procedure to get myself into college, and I, nor did my parents, because they didn't attend. And I'm the first in my family to. So the, the set of opportunities that were offered to me were dramatically different than they were offered to my friends. That does not mean I did not get a, a, a wonderful wealth of opportunities. I engaged in a lot of cool programming. I got a lot of cool arts programs, a lot of amazing things that, that I think really bring me to this, this room today. Um, however, I think when we're thinking about integration, desegregation, if we're premising the work on a system that is going to create separate opportunities for different kids based on you know, values that we place on kids and families, I think we're doing a huge disservice. And so um, in that vein, I wanted to read a quote uh, from Dr. King that uh, has been super present for me lately because it really sums up a lot of what I, why I think about this work and the tensions that I have with it. I've come upon something that disturbs me deeply. We have fought long and hard for integration, as I believe we should have, and I know that we will win. But I've come to believe that we're integrating into a burning house. And that quote for me, and I, and I think for many people, has been used for decades to either say integration can't work or is, is, is not right. And, and, and I, for many years, I thought that that was, that was true, because even attending what I thought was a desegregated school, um, there were still challenges and tensions. And so for, for many years, uh, you know, leaving high school, eventually becoming a special education teacher, teaching in predominantly black and brown schools, I was like, all we gotta do is just serve our own and, and kind of live into that. Because there, one, there's, I don't have faith that white folks are going to do the right thing, because they never have. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic in that way, and I still am, especially after this week. Um, but two, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that the, the system of education as it, as it was conceptualized and designed was never designed to serve the needs of black and brown students. It was premised on segregation and the maintenance of an economic stratified society. And so I think if we start from a, a foundational understanding that the education system, while premised on this idea of, of the great equalizer, was not designed to be the great equalizer for all of us. And, and as an educator, as someone who has very com committed his life to education, that like causes me great strain and struggle and stress because I obviously spend all my time thinking about this and doing this and, and really optimistically believing that we can actually design something better. And, and so part of that tension I, I think I bring with this is really thinking about the history. After Brown, there was mass firing of black teachers uh, in the South. There was the importation of black and brown kids, mainly black kids actually in the South, into white spaces where they, tr they experienced like physical, intellectual, and academic violence that traumatized them. And yeah, like they, they got a house now, but they have like trauma. Um, and so I think as I think about how I approach this work, that history, like our, the American history of, of desegregation integration is with me. My own personal history is with me. Um, and so there's no, the way I come to this is that there are not, an, there's no easy answers. There are no one size fits all answers. There's no one solution to this work. It's gonna probably require 100,000 silver bullets, but um, what I've learned over the past couple of years working with our young people in New York City from Integrate NYC and Teens Take Charge and working with our adult advocates from uh, ACID, the Alliance for School Integration and Desegregation, is that there are actual intentions and, and beliefs in integration that I think are, are beautiful and valuable. And so just quickly, and if I'm going over time, you like, let me know. 
Um, I just want to make two distinctions. The, what I described in my school was, there's a, we, we often conflate desegregation and integration and kind of use those words interchangeably. And, and Rick, did a, he, he, he kind of differentiated between them a little bit, and I want to kind of expand on that. The, the work of desegregation for me, and I, and I hope uh, for many of us, is really about thinking about the structural barriers to access the enrollment policies, the zoning policies, the, the mechanics of enrollment that we have designed to maintain separate and unequal facilities. The, the, the mechanics that we have designed to recreate, to concentrate uh, privilege and to concentrate vulnerability. Disrupting and, and dismantling those mechanics and those mechanisms is about, is about desegregation. That's about creating diverse spaces. For me, the, the work of integration is the work of what, like what happens once you have that space, what you, when you have a diverse space. We have a diverse audience, but there is a message that is sent to me and to people of color, and it's not intentional, and I'm no shade on the bar association, but kind of some shade, like there is a, there is a message being sent with these pictures, like that, that is a message. And so if we are creating diverse spaces that are still sending, um, messages that reinforce racism and white supremacy, then we are gonna be doing a disservice in, in, in undermining the value of what we could get out of having such a diverse space. And so those tensions exist, obviously, so that's for, for you know, the, the work of integration is not about um, creating the diversity. We can get that easily. Like, that's actually the easy part, as, as crazy as it sounds. It's like, that's the easiest part. But the hardest part is like, what do you do? How do you create educational structures? How do you create curriculum, pedagogical structures, school climate approaches that honor and value every single kid in that school? Knowing that we are premising our, our historical educational context on a system that has not valued us. And so I think the hard work and the work that, I, that I'm excited to be doing with folks like Emmy and Rick uh, and, and Clara in New York City is really thinking about, like, yeah, like, how do we dismantle the, like, the segregation through initiatives around desegregation, but then what do we do to build a structure of schooling that is better than the one we have now, that is better than the, the burning house? Because the segregated house is burning and the, 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 the house of, of desegregation that is still premised in a segregation mindset is still burning. And so how do we imagine something bigger and better than that? And that's the hard question. Um, luckily, like, I don't have to answer that question because I get to work with a bunch of amazing young people in New York City who have thought about this, who have lived or are living this every single day, and have come up with the framework that I, I find is, is really unarguable. It's called the five R's of real integration. And they've looked at the history of, of, of desegregation. They've looked at the current structures and manifestations of, of, of segregation, how it operates. Because segregation is not just about separating us from each other. It's about separating some of us from power, from opportunity, from the ability to self-actualize our lives and our identities into a, into, a, into a diverse world. And so how do we create a structure and a framework that honors all of that and that addresses all of that? And so our young people have, have picked out these five pieces as they've designed it, and they've thought about it. And so the first R is about race and enrollment. It's about designing uh, enrollment policies to desegregate our schools that take race into account, legally obviously, um, but also understand that the, the mechanics of racism don't have just to do with the way that I look. They operate in the way that my linguist, one's linguistic diversity may, may manifest. They operate through socioeconomic mechanisms. They, oper they operate through a, the way that we assign disability status to students. 
So I think that part of it is like thinking like, okay, how do we have a complex understanding of what uh, enrollment would look like that is, that is really considering racial identity as a, as a comprehensive complex set of like issues. The second piece, and I'll run through these quickly so we can get to the conversation. The second piece is about um, resources. What a manifestation of segregation is the ability for governments to historically and strategically disinvest in communities of color. That is a part of our history. We don't need to argue about that. That's just like what's happening. New York City is still owed billions of dollars by the state, um, and that's, that's an issue right now. And we cannot have a, a truly integrated system if we, it's not equitably funded. That's just, an, that's just a reality. The third piece is about what happens inside of the schools. How do we build affirming, culturally competent, educational spaces that dismantle the structures of Eurocentrism. Uh, if, if I'm not learning the history of not just uh, Chicano, Mexican people, um, but black, black folks past, before slavery um, and Asian folks before the Chinese Exclusion Act, then we are doing a massive disservice to all of our students so that we are growing up having a racially illiterate population and like we've seen what that has done to us. The fourth piece is about discipline. Uh, what we know in, in diverse spaces is that people of color are more are disproportionately going to be penalized, criminalized by structures of law enforcement, school-based uh, enforcement structures. In 2016, 99% of the kids that were handcuffed were black and brown kids. 99%. That means that's the implication is that somehow we are we are we are we necessitate the need to be in, in incessantly punitive against us. And so if we're not building educational spaces that are restorative and that, that steer away from punitive policies that again are, are not educationally beneficial and that, that um, harm and traumatize students and that again undermine their opportunities for education, then we, we are not really actually doing the deep work of integration. The last piece is really about thinking about those teachers that we lost and that we've never recouped in this country. We lost so many black teachers and professionals after the desegregation in the 40s and in the 50s and 60s. And today we have not recouped those. And so ensuring that our, our, our intention is to build educational spaces that have educators, educational leaders, staff that reflect the diversity of our school population. No shade against white educators, love y'all, but like 80% of our, our educators are middle class white women in this country. And, and a very close percentage of that is in New York City. Like, we need to actually do better about ensuring that our, our, our young people can see themselves reflected in the curriculum and in the, in the, in the like, leadership. And, and if we really think about doing all these things together, that, for me, is really the work of integration. And that's not easy, but that also is not radical. The Department of Education is already doing all five of these things. They're just kind of doing them separately. And part of the work we've been trying to do on the advisory group is to pull that all together and to create a framework and a structure of policy and practice that honors all of that work um, and, and then does the work of integration in an authentically and meaningful way that humanizes all of us. That's all, thanks. <laughs> so we ran a little bit over with that, um, but I'd like to have um, some of my own questions and I'd also like to have some questions from the audience. Um, so while uh, the while the cards are being collected, I'll ask, I have a question for uh, Rick, um, two questions actually. Um, you, you say that um, socioeconomic integration is one of the most effective ways to um, improve student achievement um, and that low income and working class children should be in schools that are predominantly middle class, which you define as schools that are less than 50% free lunch eligible. 
how does that work in New York City where we have about 75% of the children are free lunch eligible? Sorry if I stand up. Sure. I, I, can, I can't see anyone over here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so the, for many, many years, the research suggested that uh, there were some negative effects associated with concentrated poverty above 50% low income. In, in more recent years, uh, researchers have recognized that because low income is defined primarily as those eligible for free and reduced price lunch, uh, that, um, that that old standard doesn't uh, have the same uh, resonance that it, that it once did. That is to say, if you look at poverty numbers across the country, and if you look at free and reduced price lunch eligibility numbers, uh, the, the second has risen faster than the first. And so uh, there are a number of schools in New York City, for example, where uh, when you reach a certain threshold, everyone in the community is eligible for free and reduced price lunch. And so my, my colleague, uh, Hallie Potter, and I, in our, our most recent work, have suggested that um, given those new data uh, realities, it makes more sense to think about school integration in terms of a school that's between 30 and 70 percent low income. Uh, and and so, so that's, that's one indicator. The other thing is, uh, you know, in New York City, even 30 to 70 percent is not today possible uh, because I think it's about 70, I think you said 74 percent yeah. of students are eligible for free and reduced price lunch. So you, you're facing a more modest version of what Chicago faced, where they have 85% low income. And I think that uh, what makes sense is to try to integrate as many schools as you can that reach that 30 to 70% uh, level. There are many, many more that could be uh, integrated than are today. Uh, and over time, uh, as there is greater demonstration of high-performing, integrated public schools. It is possible that some of the parents who are using private school now uh, will, will return to the public school. After all, it is free. Um, and so there's, it's, it's not a hard sell once, um, once those parents are convinced that, uh, that uh, high-quality, integrated schools are available. Um, Matt, I don't know if you want to reply to that. Um, one of the things that your group has called for the city to ensure that um, schools reflect the demographics of their districts, which would mean in the Bronx, for example, every school would be 89% black and Latino um, and about 85% free lunch eligible. Is, is that what you consider integration? Yeah, so I mean, um, we live in a city where the majority of students attending public schools are students of color and low income. And so just like to be very clear, and there's no, I'm not making any implications for Rick or Clara, but like there is an implication that a school that is serving uh, mostly black and brown kids is somehow inherently bad, which is a, a racist narrative. There is a, 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 an implication that, um, I, I will actually say that when we concentrate vulnerability, um, we talk about poverty, um, that, that it's, there's nothing bad about like 
poor kids. I'm a poor kid. I have a poor kid mentality. I'm still like economically mobile, but I'm like a poor kid. Um, there's nothing bad about me inherently, but concentrating me with the various needs that I brought into my educational space and, and then disinvesting in us is a bad thing. And so like what I, what I, I think, again, I, I would say schools that are reflecting their communities for now, this is a conversation we were having last night in the advisory group. So like just understanding that the, the demographics of the city, the structure of the city, the best way to think about it is if we set a like one goal, all schools need to hit this number, then it's gonna require a massing bus busing program, which nobody wants and is no, no one is interested in. So thinking about ensuring that all schools are constant or are serving a representative number of, a, a representative distribution of privilege and vulnerability. And if we think of that broadly, so yes, there are gonna be schools that are serving mostly black and brown kids. And if we wave the wand of integration, we would still have a system serving mostly black and brown kids, and that's okay. But I think it's, it's really about dismantling and disrupting the concentrations of privilege and vulnerability that exist in our system, and then really thinking about that framework and then investing deeply in our schools. It's not just, we can't move, our, move bodies around to fix this problem. We have to create mobility. We have to ensure folks have access to choice, like actual choice. But then we also have to deeply invest in the schools that have not been invested in for decades and decades. And so the work that's gonna have to happen in the Bronx is gonna look dramatically different than what it's looked like in District 1, District 3, District 15. Those are different, different populations. And so I am comfortable with a desegregated like, district that is reflective of the community um, and serving all of the, every single school is accountable for serving every single kid in that community. In the long term, like in three years, yes, I think every, every school needs to serve every kid in their community. Um, in the, the, the larger term, we think every school in a borough, every school should reflect the borough. Um, and then in the larger term, what we talked about yesterday was like eventually setting some, like a 10-year goal maybe, that we can get to where all the schools have some sort of better balance. But I think just thinking logically and realistically, there is no way we are going to get the demographics of the city um, to reflect, to be reflected in every single community because we have a very diverse city and a residentially segregated city. Um, Rick, um, parents of color in low-income neighborhoods resent the notion that there's something missing in their children that will be fixed by, by sitting next to middle-class kids. These parents say they want more resources for their schools, not more middle-class kids. Uh, what, what is it about socioeconomic integration that makes it more effective than giving more resources to schools? First of all, if I can, let, let me draw a distinction. I think, I think you were doing this, Matt, with, between uh, integration by race and integration by socioeconomic status, because uh, I completely agree that in terms of, in terms of race, uh, that reflecting the community should be the goal. So if a school is, is predominantly African-American and Latino and reflecting the community, uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and, and I, I completely reject the notion that somehow uh, African-American and Latino kids benefit from uh, the presence of white children. That is not what any of the research has suggested. By contrast, there is a, a strong body of research to suggest that low-income students, on average, will uh, do better when uh, there is an economic mix in the school. And so the, the problem isn't, um, 
is, 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 is much more of an economic concentration issue as opposed to a race issue. So let me, let me answer your question as to why should it matter? Why does it matter if you're, you know, your classmates are low income or they're, or they're middle class? And I think there are three things going on that have to do with kind of the three sets of actors in any school. So they're the parents, uh, they're the students, and then there are the teachers uh, along, with the, along with the principals. So to begin with, uh, there is a, uh, extensive research to suggest that peers matter uh, and that it is an advantage for students to be in a school where students, uh, some of their classmates expect to go on to college um, and have those, uh, those uh, aspirations to, to do so. Uh, in high poverty schools, um, there are uh, uh, less, there are more students who are coming because of the economic uh, disadvantages they face with lower levels of achievement. Uh, we know that students are learning from one another uh, in terms of academic achievement as well. And because of the opportunity gap, low-income students come to school with uh, smaller vocabularies, for example, on average, than middle-class students. Nothing to do, not their fault in any sense, uh, but that's a reality. And so a low-income student who is in a uh, economically mixed school will be exposed to more vocabulary than a low-income student who is in a high-poverty school on average. Uh, second piece are the, the parents. Um, and again, there's a strong body of research to suggest that having parents who are in a position to be actively involved in school affairs uh, benefits the entire school community, all the students in those schools. If you are uh, struggling economically, if you don't have a car to get to the, uh, to the PTA meeting, um, if you are, have constrained hours so that you can't get to, to those sorts, to the back to school night, uh, it's totally understandable that there would be lower levels of uh, parental involvement in high poverty schools. Nevertheless, it's a disadvantage uh, for all the students in that school, and when there is an economic mix in the school, there will be some who can, um, can be in a position to, uh, to be more involved in school affairs. Again, completely a class issue, not a race issue. Upper middle class, African American, Latino family uh, parents are just as active in school affairs because they have that flexibility, just as interested in education. But, um, but there are economic constraints to parental involvement and that affects everyone in the school. The third piece of the teachers, and if life were fair, uh, the high poverty schools would get the best teachers. We know on average uh, the opposite happens. Um, there are, of course, great teachers in high poverty schools, but on average, they're less experienced. Uh, uh, there's higher levels of turnover in, in those, uh, those schools. And so for all three of those reasons, uh, we can see why it was that in places like Montgomery County, having the opportunity to attend an economically integrated school had even greater power than, um, than spending extra resources per pupil. Thank you. I'm going to go to some of the questions now. Um, what about Asian Americans? They're not black, brown, white. Where do they fit all in this uh, questions of race and equity and school integration? take that one. Um, so uh, 
the, the Asian diaspora is massive in New York City. It's massive across this country. The ways in which we talk about the Asians is like, again, is a function and a mechanism of racism and white supremacy. So the concentration of all Asian folks into one, um, one category is a, a specific by design to disempower and, and kind of ensure that we don't have a complex understanding. And so uh, Asian folks, absolutely need to be engaged into this, this conversation. And I think folks like myself and other people in the advocacy community, I think have, have, have had blind spots in many ways because up until very recently, um, we haven't had a, a huge presence of, of, of Asian voices in the conversation. And so like, I have to take responsibility for that. Um, but I think overall, when we think about breaking down the kind of category of Asian folks in this city, on on mass, the majority of Asian people are being harmed by this school system, are not being served effectively by this school system. And so it is entirely in the interest of all communities, really, again, all communities of color who have who've experienced historic oppression to be engaged in this conversation. Um, there's a, a very small subset of, of Asian community members who are doing wonderfully, um, and those, those voices need to be heard too, but those voices tend to be, have tended to be the loudest um, in these debates, and have, have ultimately drowned out some of the Asian communities that, that e are experiencing the highest levels of, of economic insecurity, who are not having their linguistic needs met in our school system. And so um, the work, I think, of advocates is, is really to open our arms and ensure that we're creating spaces that include um, of the voices of our Asian partners, our brothers and sisters, but also understanding that in the Latinx community that I come from, there's anti-black racism. In the Asian community, there's anti-black racism. And if we're not addressing or disrupting those, those functions of anti-black racism in our own communities, then we are never going to really be able to build solidarity. And so I think there's a tension that we need to address, but I fight with my, my Latinx family when they say anti-black stuff all the time because we have to build a, a kind of solidarity. Again, not just with people of color. There are many um, white folks in this city who are committed to racial justice. And so ensuring that our conversations about integration, about equity, are inclusive of all of those voices committed to racial justice, they must include Asian families. And I think that, um, again, like we have done a disservice to our Asian community members in a lot of ways, but are really working hard through our youth work and through our, our work with Asian to try to build more, um, build more partnerships and bridges with our, our community partners. And, and as the um, shooting in the synagogue shows, there are also white people who are the victims of racism and, and uh, discrimination. Um, this is a question for, uh, for Rick. What supports, resources are needed to obtain the benefits of diversity other than simply grouping children together, i.e. curriculum, training for teachers, and how to handle classes of diverse students and different supplies. I don't know, that sounds like a question for Matt, but uh, Rick, you wanna answer? Tell us about the five R's. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> Matt has drilled me on the five R's. So, um, no, I, I, think, I think Matt was quite right to say that uh, integrating schools is, uh, or desegregating schools is only the first step. We then need to make sure that the, uh, the curriculum is, is culturally responsive, that teachers are trained to to bring out and capitalize on diversity rather than be, um, be intimidated by it. Uh, and that, um, that it, the school environment matters too. I mean, when, when you do look around this, this building uh, or this room, um, it, it, it sends such a powerful message. And we think of this as something that happens 
on southern campuses where they have the Confederate uh, statues. Um, but it happens all around us every day. All of these things matter tremendously. And, uh, I, but I think the other thing to mention is that uh, although the challenges are very, very deep uh, and powerful, they can't be used as an excuse uh, uh, to c remain segregated, because I, I do hear that as well. That uh, you know, when when we bring kids together of different backgrounds, uh, go to the lunchroom and everyone's sitting in separate tables, uh, that's a failure of educators. That's um, th that's not uh, an excuse for for failing to desegregate in the first place. I'm going to answer this one, which is, what was the result of the fight over the rezoning of schools on the west side? What is the lesson? So um, the Upper West Side, you may know, has very fancy brownstones right next to public housing developments. And for many years, there was one school um, on, on West 61st Street that just served kids from the projects. And there was another school that mostly uh, uh, served higher income kids. And as a result of a, a, a rezoning, the um, Community Education Council, which is the parent elected body that draws the zone lines, scrambled them all up. What's happening now? 199, which used to have mostly white kids in the zone, now has kids from the housing development zoned for that school, but they're not going there. They're choosing not to go there. 191, which used to be mostly kids from the housing developments, was rezoned to include some white kids, and they're not going there. And then there's a, when I say not going there, not very many of them are going there. I mean, um, um, and then the third school, 452, does have a mix of, uh, Emmy's uh, nodding, so I'm, I'm, I'm right, okay? Yeah. So there must be something in the culture of those schools which is telling, I'm just assuming, that's telling some kids you're not welcome in this school or you don't feel welcome or there's not people like you or something. And so um, the rezoning was a good first step, but it's clearly not all, all we need to do. And it's also, also clear that parents won't send their child to a school that they think is not going to work for them whatever the zone lines are. A Emmy, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think that um, what, what you're talking about in terms of the patterns we've seen, and we have seen some change in the enrollment patterns. If you look at just the youngest grades at those schools, so if you look at pre-K and kindergarten, we see the demographics shifting a bit, but you're right that it has not been seismic by any stretch, and that speaks to the need to do more than just redraw the zone lines and recreate admissions policy, but to do things like create the Family Resource Center, like we did um, on the Lower East Side, to educate families and overcome some of the reputations they're hearing, the word of mouth from families in their building about, you know, that school's not for you. We need to have more voices informing parents about all of the attributes of the schools in their community. Um, this is, it connects to our need to continue to invest in anti-bias training to make sure that the teachers in historically primarily white schools are welcoming and create a culture that is inviting to families who historically felt like that school wasn't for them. It speaks to the need to have a pedagogy and a curriculum in each of these schools that feels inclusive to all of the children who are sitting in the classroom. And so those are all investments that we're making and they will take time to bear out. 
And we'll see some change on the basis of admissions alone, but it's not enough. Um, it seems that there's an assumption that selective schools must be abolished to achieve diversity. Is there any room for academically selective schools in a city committed to desegregation? I can start, and then I think um, I, I know others up here have, have opinions about this. Um, so many of the most, not most, but many of schools in New York City have selective admissions methods where students uh, on the basis of academic or other criteria are admitted to their schools. We see schools that as a result of this do not represent their communities at all. A lot of the conversation of the last several months has centered on the specialized high schools, uh, which are eight schools that admit students on the basis of a single exam and in a city where 70% of our high school students are black or Latino, they make up less than 9% of the population at those eight schools. And we look at that and say, something here is wrong. Um, this, is, this is, how can we have a system that is resulting in this kind of outcome and still be fair? Uh, so it's not that we think selective admissions is necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. Um, there are incredible academic environments that exist all over the city where students are accessing opportunities, helping them on a path towards uh, what they might do after they graduate. But to have schools that so starkly uh, misrepresent the city's demographics, something unfair is happening there. And that's what we really want to look at is how can we create schools that both offer a rich academic opportunity and a fair and equitable shot for all students to equally gain admissions to them. I, I, I want to point out that there are some screened admissions schools that are completely uh, integrated. Uh, Manhattan Hunter on the Upper West Side has a 63% free lunch rate, and it's about a quarter of each of the um, racial groups, uh, racial and ethnic groups. Uh, Bard Queens is another one, 63% free lunch, a mix of different races there. Absolutely. And uh, with the diversity and admissions pilot schools, we've seen several very selective, traditionally screened schools that have implemented diversity and admissions plans in an effort to attract a more socioeconomically integrated student body. I'll just add a couple things. So um, I think it's actually, I think, necessary to kind of separate this conversation. Um, I think we just actually need to interrogate what is the educational value and benefit of having a hierarchical system of schools that some kids get super awesome, amazing opportunities and some kids don't. I think we should interrogate that. Personally, fundamentally, I think in a publicly funded system, there should be no system of hierarchy. Everyone should be getting an amazing, dope, selective educational space. And the idea that only some are going to get it and some aren't uh, is, 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 I think, is, is, is actually why we do it. Because we have to create a system of, of, of exclusivity. Um, and the theory of action around that was to, to maintain middle class white folks into the system. And like, if that's what the intention is, then let's just be very transparent that that's what we're doing, um, and then we can confront that. Um, I think if we're thinking about the ways in which that interacts with desegregation, they're in inherently antithetical to each other. The idea of utilizing um, selective admissions methods that, again, like, if, if we're gonna create selective admissions methods, the selection should be in the power of parents, not in the power of schools. Right now, schools get to select who they wanna serve. And that, again, like, that's what I disagree with. If you want to have a selective, like, science-based program, that's dope. But, like, you should not get to decide which kids get to go to that program. The families of this city who fund this system should get to decide that. And so 
you know, again, I think we can think about how to create selective or specialized programming. I think that's fine. But when we're using mechanisms that are historically racially biased, test scores are racially biased, behavior marks are racially biased, attendant, the use of attendance marks are an economic indicator. So if we're, if we're gonna have selective admissions methods, we need to make sure they're transparent, they're, they're legally consistent with federal guidance, and they're not having a segregative effect in the ones that we operate in, under in New York City have a very segregative effect. One of the things that happened under the Bloomberg administration was that they created several hundred very small schools to deal with the fact that tens of thousands of kids arrive in ninth grade reading at a fourth or fifth grade level and unable to do arithmetic. Those schools have been very successful in getting the kids over the bar to graduation, but they don't offer a college prep curriculum. They don't have chemistry. They don't have physics. They don't have algebra two. So that, in fact, a lot of the screen schools are the schools which offer a college prep curriculum. The small schools, I think, have done a terrific job. Graduation rates at what I call the biggie baddies used to be like 30, 40%. The fact that they've got the, the graduation rate up to 75% is fabulous. But to the, those schools that are a school of 400 kids, which is serving kids which are th who are three or four years behind grade level, is not going to offer what everybody needs. And you can't expect every school to offer um, every kid, unless it's going to be a school of 3,000, and then you could have uh, a huge range of, of different abilities. So the larger schools surely can serve a range of kids of different abilities, but the small schools, I think it's, it's, it's another story. Anyway, I'm meant to be a moderator, not a panelist, so I'll shut up. Um, uh, a couple of questions about people talking about the districts which are racially and economically diverse, um, but there's a lot that are not. In fact, there's, um, I think there's 17 districts that have um, a free lunch rate of more than 75% and a, um, a fewer than 10% white kids. So what can we do, what does integration mean in those districts? Emmy? <laughs> I'll go quickly, uh, I'll try to be quick. Um, so yes, like that, that, that's a reality of our city. Um, one, like a, I live in Inwood, uh, which is actually kind of gentrifying a bunch, and I'm a gentrifier, so that's my fault. Um, but in, in communities of color that are predominantly people of color, there's a tremendous level of diversity. So the implication that because we're all black and brown doesn't mean we're not like on diasporas of diversity, like that's, that's, that's a broken understanding of diversity. Um, two, um, even in communities of color, um, in Washington Heights in District 6, Uptown Manhattan, in Bed-Stuy, um, in, in Brooklyn, there are still, uh, you know, these are homo fairly homogenous communities, but there still are concentrations of privilege and vulnerability. And so again, if we're thinking beyond, like expanding our mindset to really think about privilege and vulnerability and the concentrations of them, there is work of, of integration or desegregation that can happen every, in every community. There are schools that are serving disproportionate numbers of students with special needs. There are schools that are serving disproportionate numbers of students uh, who have housing insecurities. If we are concentrating the vulnerabilities into a handful of schools and be like, well, you're still all black and brown, so it don't matter. Like, that, again, like that, that, that is a narrow understanding of what desegregation can be. And so um, part of one, like there's, there's enrollment policies that can be shifted across the city. But, but part of why we have such a broad framework is that there need to be investments beyond enrollment that, that are necessary. And so part of the framework that we operate from 
is designed to ensure that every single community can enter the enter has an on ramp to the, the integration conversation. Maybe you're not coming on like we're going to dismantle enrollment policies because maybe that is not the primary driver of of inequality. But there's still a conversation there. But if there is another entry point through culturally responsive education or through resource equity, if those are on ramps to this conversation, then I think that's 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 a good starting place. But every community can do enrollment changes that are going to create more equitable and more well distributed schools. But in, in Washington Heights, for example, there are a number of it's, it's largely um, Latino, mostly largely Dominican. Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple of progressive schools that serve kids from the whole district that are racially integrated, that have maybe 20% white kids. Under your plan, those schools would have to have fewer than 20% white kids. Which plan of mine are you talking about? Uh, the ACID, the oh. ACID, ACID ah, I shouldn't call ACID. it, ACID the, uh, plan, that those schools you would have to even it all out, whereas what uh, Rick says is that it should be like Chicago, where it's better to have pockets of integration than to smooth everything out so that every school is exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the idea that we're going to have this like perfect balance in any district is is not accurate. I think the the way we articulated our goal was that we the vision is that every single school is again trying to working to serve a proportional number you know percentage or number of privileged and vulnerable students. The ways in which that's going to kind of like manifest on the like school by school level, like we're not going to be able to like say you can only have this many black and brown kids. You can only have this many like kids I mean I think it's yeah I mean I think that the vision is to have representative schools again serving privilege and vulnerability in an equitable way but like I, we're not like intense about the like percentages of that because what we know is that our city's changing gentrification's happening and so if we were to set this goal of like you can only have like 15% of your students can, can be middle class kids. If that's the like bar we're setting, then that is not gonna take into account the, the changes that are happening in this city already. And so we wanted to have an, a goal or just a framing of a goal that was like flexible, but also had an ideal of representation. Rick, Emmy, wanna add anything? I think just to echo on um, a, a point Matt made, I think that the differences among our districts um, really is why both the DOE has recognized such a broad definition of diversity that we need to be thinking about not just race and socioeconomic status, but uh, disability status, housing status, um, the, the language a family speaks at home, the country where a child was born, and, and the full, full list of characteristics. And then we need to partner with each community and each district to engage in a planning process to understand what diversity means in their community and how we want to achieve it across their schools. And it will meaningfully look different in the South Bronx than it does in District 1 or District 15. And that's good and okay, and we want families to feel like the schools in their neighborhood represent their community and they have a high quality option for their child right in their own neighborhood. Most of the um, segregation is across between districts and not within districts. So that you have like, uh, you know, Mount Vernon just north of the city is majority black, and then you go just a little bit further and you get Bronxville, which is 91% white. So, um, and that's part of the problem with, Rick, is that correct? Is part of our problem with uh, creating integration is that our school system is based on local property taxes and local districts. Um, so I, I think that this is, this is one of the issues we keep coming 
up with uh, and the diversity advisory group. You know, one of the limitations, if you only go with a district by district approach uh, for integration, is is you lose the possibility of of cross uh, district integration, which I think would be um, would would be very unfortunate, especially at the high school level where you can choose from any uh, district. It, it, I think it makes much less sense to to define the goals simply by district. At the same time, I think uh, Matt and others have made a really persuasive case that uh, we need to to think over time about the integration challenges, and uh, that the districts are a good starting place uh, to try to be more reflective um, of the communities uh, with the eventual goal of, of getting uh, integration across district lines. So I don't think it's, um, I think as a moderator, you're doing an excellent job of trying to um, stir uh, discussion and Try to stir some trouble up um, here, make you guys I, I disagree. We're not, yeah. we're not too, uh, <laughs> too far apart on that. Let me, let me do say one thing that, that maybe we are a little bit different on, um, on the selective schools, because I didn't get to answer that question. So I completely agree that the, the status quo is, um, is broken. It is obscene that Stuyvesant has a minuscule number of African-American and Latino students. Something has to change. So I think we're all in agreement on that. Uh, the question is uh, how far to go. And uh, one, one alternative is to try to make the selective enrollment schools fairer in their admissions process. And so in Chicago, I worked with the school district to, in essence, provide better opportunities for low-income students to have a chance to uh, attend some of their selective schools. So that's one step. A more radical step would be to abolish the selective schools entirely, uh, you know, at the high school level, at the uh, middle school level, um, and to get rid of all gifted and talented at the, at the elementary school level. Um, so I don't have any particular brief in favor of selectivity. Uh, because I worry about the consequences of inequality. I do think, however, that we have to face the reality that if we want integrated schools, there has to be an incentive for those families who have options to leave uh, to stay. I don't think necessarily that selectivity and screening is the right incentive. It could, lots of, you know, Cambridge has magnet programs that are non-selective and manage to draw in parents. But we do have to be aware of unintended consequences of, um, of completely de-screening our schools. And if we did make that move, we'd have to figure out what new programs are going to be put in place to make sure that people of all different backgrounds are attracted to the New York City public schools. So we need to wrap it up right now. No, we don't need to wrap it up right now. Okay, we can keep going. All right. Um, we want to ask Emmy, what are we going to do about the gifted and talented programs uh, that start, that tests four-year-olds to see if they're in the 99th percentile on nationally normed tests? Which, uh, so surprise, surprise, means a lot of kids on the Upper East Side are, um, you know, it's Lake Wobegon. Everybody's above average. And, uh, so gifted and talented is a topic the School Diversity Advisory Group has been discussing quite a bit. Um, 
And under this administration, we have piloted gifted and talented programs that start later in elementary school in third grade. Um, those programs use multiple measures, including teacher observations and other data besides um, just a single test. And we do see that our third grade programs uh, are serving a more representative population than the kindergarten programs. Um, I think this is a topic where we're looking to our advisory group to make recommendations um, so that we can and, uh, and continue to have further conversations about what the future should look like. And in the meantime, we are continuing to expand our third grade program. Why aren't principals required to have a diverse staff? Some schools are all white, some all black, some young. Emmy, you're, you're representing the DOE here, so it's... <laughs> I get the whole DOE. I don't get to claim a pass because this is not an enrollment question. Um, I think uh, there is no such policy in place at this point, though um, in the last couple years we have introduced a number of efforts to try and help schools to diversify their teaching workforce. Um, there is a citywide program called NYC Men Teach, which is targeted at bringing men of color into the classroom uh, as teachers. And we have, through that and other programs, worked to help mentor teachers to recruit and retain a more diverse population. We've also begun work in our high schools, having conversations with high school students about pathways into education. And we are starting to see students express more of an interest in going down the, the path of becoming educators. Uh, I think this is to Matt's recitation of the five R's as we think about representation and the importance of representation, another topic that I think we're expecting to see recommendations from the advisory group and continue to look to other pilots or initiatives that we could implement. Yeah, Rick? I just want to put in a word for one, one program that's, that's, that's been very important in New York City on this issue of teacher diversity. Uh, so I, I wrote a biography of Al Shanker, the uh, the head of the UFT and then the AFT nationally. Uh, and uh, one of the things he was most proud of was organizing the paraprofessionals. These are the teacher's aides who are, um, at the time, were predominantly African-American and Latino, and uh, I imagine today may, may still be. Uh, and, and Shanker thought it was, was very um, destructive for students in New York City to see a white teacher uh, accompanied by an African-American or Latino assistant. That that sent a message to kids every day. And so he uh, organized the paraprofessionals and got them to be part of the union. There were a lot of teachers who resented this, didn't want them to be part of the union, and Al Shanker said, if we don't allow them to be part of the union, I'm going to resign. As, as president. Uh, that's how important it was to him. And, and one of the things uh, he was most proud of was uh, creating a career ladder for paraprofessionals where the city of, of New York helps pay the tuition of paraprofessionals to go get a college degree and become a teacher. And he said, this is going to be the future of, of, of diversity for uh, the teaching force in, in New York City. And over the years, there have been hundreds, maybe thousands, of paraprofessionals who've taken that path. Uh, and I, I think those are the types of programs we need to encourage. Um, while challenges in federal court against school segregation in New York City are not an option, what about state court challenges here? 
What about address, addressing aspects of school inequity, like the lawsuit challenging access to sports, team, sports teams under the New York City human rights law? You know, some schools have lots of sports and some don't. Anybody want to answer that? Is that a legal challenge that would work? Um, the sports access issue is very much a, a legitimate case that is being brought and that I actually think the DOE is actually responding to it. And so I guess what I would say to the, the suggestion that we need a court case or a court order is really I think if we listen to anything that Dennis said um, earlier is that we can, have, we can have a court order. We've had a court order that said segregation was wrong. Um, that doesn't necessarily actually mean anything is going to happen. And so I think we're in a moment right now where we have a chancellor who is um, seems very committed to integration and equity. We have the folks like Emmy and the team that she works with at the, the Department of Education. And we also people, have people at the New York State Education Department who are all kind of working um, in, in a really productive way to support this. And so I think we're in a moment where we don't need a court case. A lot of the work we need to do is like administrative changes that either don't require a law, there's actually change in some, some kind of administrative policy. And so um, I think we're not in a moment um, where we need to sue the city, um, obviously, because we're all working together to move forward. Um, I didn't think that a couple years ago, but that was under a different chancellor. And, you know, I may not think that under a, diff another, a, new, a newer chancellor, but I think right now we have an opportunity to um, all work together to build something better. And so, yeah, I mean, I just don't even know what, what, the, what the lawsuit would be and what the remedy would be because we're kind of already moving towards remedies. Um, what do you respond to parents who think that integrating schools will decrease the academic rigor of the school? Rick? Uh, I mean, this is a concern that always, always comes up. Um, and in the desegregation literature, there was, uh, there was disagreement over how much desegregation improved the scores of, of African-American students. There was no disagreement, none whatsoever. Even the biggest opponents of segregation, uh, I'm sorry, of desegregation, admitted that when schools were desegregated, white scores did not go down. There was no negative effect whatsoever. That, it, but it depends consensus. on the it depends on the makeup of the school. No, no, I mean not not with respect to race. It didn't make any difference uh, with concentrations of poverty. There, yeah. there, are, there, that's a different story. But um, but so so there are there are no negative effects. And and now many many more parents are recognizing the that if they want their child, their white child, to be. Uh, culturally literate in the, uh, in the, in the uh, 21st century, if they want to be able to succeed in the workforce, their children uh, will be less equipped to do so in a, um, in a segregated, white segregated school, and that diversity will uh, redound to the benefit. Of, but but middle-class children who are in very high poverty schools Could, will not do as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, and, and that's, that's why I'm recommending, uh, you know, 70% um, as, a, as a goal, uh, set 30 to 70% low income. Um, I, I don't uh, think it, it, it makes sense for, um, for anyone, low income or middle class, to be in extremely high poverty schools. And we don't, 
we don't have to have that situation. Even in, in New York City, with the right programs, uh, the, uh, the level of integration, economic integration, is possible in, in lots of districts and over time could be possible citywide. I have just one more question. It's sort of one and a half questions. One is, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? And the other is, what can we do as citizens with no kids in the schools anymore? How can we help affect change? Emmy? Uh, optimistic, pessimistic? I am cautiously optimistic. Um, I think we've seen a really strong grassroots movement over the last couple of years, coupled with support from this administration that I think has the potential to create real change. And through groups like the School Diversity Advisory Group, I think we have the potential to recommend really significant policy shifts. Um, in terms of what folks can do who do not have kids in the school system, I think as Matt said, we need a coalition of people who are supportive of this work. I think the opposition to this work is, is organized. You're hearing from up here a group of people who are fully sold on the benefits of school integration. I think you can help us by talking to people in your community about the benefits of integrated schools. If you're interested in more of the research, I think all of us are happy to share it with you, and it's included in the DOE's diversity plan, schools.nyc.gov diversity. Um, you can participate in community meetings at your local community education council or your community board where discussions are being had about school diversity. You can contribute to public dialogue in, in many other ways. And I think just join us in being part of this movement. Um, I am pessimist, no, optimistically pessimistic. Um, and so to like uh, steal James Baldwin's quote, uh, I'm constantly in a state of rage, or to steal a quote from uh, Avengers, the Hulk, I'm always mad. Um, so I mean, I'm, the work that I get to do in New York City gives me so much optimism. The, the work that I've gotten to do with the folks on, I'm sharing the stage with, with our young people, with our group uh, ACID, that some, like, has transformed how I think about um, what we can do at the local and state level. And so I'm super optimistic about our, our chances for local change. Like that's really where I'm committed to work. Um, beyond that, I'm in, in deeply pessimistic because I don't believe this country is, is, is committed to doing the right thing. Um, what y'all can do is one, if uh, I'm a childless advocate, um, so I, I found an entry point, but I get paid to do it. Um, th there, there are other entry points to work with this. If you are interested in engaging with the kind of community of advocates, uh, nycacid.com is a really amazing place to plug in. We have monthly meetings. Um, we have a bunch of working groups. We have a policy group. We have a house meeting group, a group that like, goes into people's houses and facilitates conversations. Um, so there are a number of ways for anyone to be involved. We have a lot of people from different backgrounds that, that plug in that way. Um, but yes, I mean, I think what you can do is that it, you have a community of people that maybe I don't have access to, and, you know, engage them in this conversation, share some of the literature, sh share some of the research, um, become an advocate yourself, you know? I mean, if you think that, that this is unacceptable, like the, the state of segregation is unacceptable, you know, start to educate yourself on the issue and, and really find a way to plug in. But there, there are entry points. If you have students, high school students, middle school students, we have a youth. Uh, youth organization called Integrate NYC and Teens Take Charge. These two groups are killing it across the city. So there are a number of ways to plug in, um, and I encourage you to connect with us, and we'll point you in the right direction. Uh, three reasons for optimism. Uh, 
Uh, first is, is Matt and his, his organizing. Um, I think you saw how incredible he is. And uh, this is, is the type of organizing that was not going on a couple of years ago. So that's very exciting. Secondly, uh, as Emmy mentioned, uh, well, I'll, I'll put Emmy as part of this uh, larger um, Department of Education transformation. So we had a chancellor, and, and Emmy, you wouldn't be able to say this, but I will. Uh, we had a chancellor who was saying, her, whose idea of integration was pen pals, right? We would, we would have uh, students from one school write to school, students in another school. Uh, that was, there, there has been a tr transformation with the new chancellor who told the Atlantic Monthly that desegregation uh, and the challenge of segregation uh, was uh, one of his very top priorities. So that's a second reason uh, for optimism. The third reason, and this will be a little bit convoluted, but um, I'm optimistic because of all the damage that is going on nationally with our president. I think that, uh, at least in places like New York City, it is a wake-up call that our, our democracy is under siege. And you cannot have uh, a system of public schools that serves uh, democratic values when they are segregated. It teaches kids a terrible lesson when uh, their civics class uh, teacher says, you know, we're, we're all equal in this democracy. And then kids look around and see those levels of segregation and realize that, um, or conclude that, that there's not much uh, that can be done in this country. That is corrosive, it is damaging. And the fact that Trump has pushed us to the edge, uh, I, I think um, gives the possibility at least for, for real reform in lots of different areas, including this fundamental issue of, of, of Brown versus Board of Education. So on that inspiring note, I think we'll say thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you all very, very much for staying. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, Clara. Um, just so you know, the Education and the Law Committee will be having another panel in the spring, probably late in April, on high schools and integration. So those questions that you asked about high school integrations and specialized high schools, we hope to be addressing some of those questions in the spring. So thank you very, very much, and good evening. Thank <laughs> you.